one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alpha. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the unlocking and the Indian variant. And you ask us, what will the new dividing lines in politics be? So we're recording on a day when lots of the lockdown restrictions are easing. Um, in England, pubs, cafes and restaurants are opening indoors um, and you can also start um, holiday flights abroad again to a small number of countries. Um, but it is colliding with an uptick in uh, cases of the Indian variant. Um, and it's interesting that a number of ministers, including the prime minister, are are warning people to be incredibly cautious while they are unlocking um, and sticking to their roadmap. Um, Stephen, you wrote about this this morning, and it, it seems uh, from what you were writing about that they are sort of pinning their concern on the people who are eligible for vaccination but haven't had the vaccine yet, um, rather than maybe some of the mistakes that they've made that's meant this variant is actually in circulation. Is that a fair summary? I think it's doubly weird for people to be talking about the vaccine hesitant in the UK context. Um, the first is we really don't have very many, right? Like if you were to create the most vaccine hesitant composite Brit, they would still be more likely to want to get a jab than the median, um, the median global citizen. If the, if the comparatively low number of people in the UK who are not going to end up with a jab in their arm at some point is a reason why we have to delay the reopening, that means we will never fully reopen. I think we need to be candid uh, with the country about what, what we're actually suggesting there. But of course, the real reason is, is that it's, it's, it's politically more comfortable to go, some people, not you, um, because people love the idea that some people, not them, are breaking the rules, are why this might happen, rather than going... Hey, you know that nine-day period when we went everywhere else in the Indian subcontinent and region <laughs> on the red list? But the one we're negotiating a trade deal with sort of at the moment, uh, maybe they're not. It, it's more politically easy for the government to, to have the it's some other people's fault rather than it's their fault. But yeah, so, so I, I do think that is part of why um, we are having a kind of, oh, what about the people who won't get jabbed? Because in some ways, in a British context, the answer to that is, well, what about them? Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I really urge listeners to read a piece by our excellent colleague Sarah Manavis. She was she was writing about this in April, and she the headline on her piece was the actual 
question that I think, which was why has the COVID-19 vaccine had such high uptake in the UK? Because we heard so much about sort of anti-vaxxers and vaccine hesitancy as they started unrolling the the vaccine programme. But actually, uptake has been really, really high, higher than other vaccinations in this country. So the real question is, you know, how how come that's the case? That's the sort of one of the most impressive part trends of this whole vaccination program in the UK. So any politician who's trying to pin this on, oh, you know, there's certain communities in Bolton who were eligible but didn't have the vaccine and, you know, now lots of them are in hospital with the variant. Any politician that's trying to pin this on certain communities or or, um, certain attitudes towards vaccination is is being disingenuous because the uptake has been really really high uh and and really the problem is with these variants that um, are circulating is that they haven't been kept out of the country and i think another problem you know we've spoken about that you you mentioned about how they they didn't put india on the red list um until well after other countries in in the area and of course boris johnson was supposed to visit india at the time when they were suddenly trying to make this decision on whether or not to put it on the red list but even if it wasn't you know on the red list you're still supposed to self-isolate when you come back from abroad um apart from from green list countries um, so that suggests that the self-isolation program isn't working. You know, really, the system that's in place, even if you don't have to go to a hotel for a certain number of days and make sure you don't leave and, and you, you get sort of, you know, people are checking that you're staying in your hotel room, for example. Even if you're not doing that, the system is supposed to stop you from reseeding the the infection into the population when you come home from abroad or bringing new variants to, to the country if you come home from abroad. So that system is clearly not working. And that's been a problem from the start. You know, you don't only have to self-isolate when you get get home from abroad. You, you have to self-isolate if you have symptoms or if you've come into contact with someone who's been infected. Um, and we've spoken about it so many times, but that there's a flaw in that system, which is that the, there's no incentive to keep people at home if they need to go to work. Um, and also <laughs> adding to this problem is the cost and the t- terrible inefficiency of the private um, sort of s- market that's grown up around these tests that you that you have to buy in order to come home and and uh, self isolate. So there's the test to release system, um, which le- allows you to finish self isolation early if you if if you test negative. And then there's the day two and day eight testing system where you sort of get tested to s- check whether or not you have a variant on day two, and you get tested on day eight to check whether or not you're negative and can go back. Um, go back outdoors. Um, so that system that I've been looking a lot into is is really poor. So these private companies that sell you those tests, the prices are high, they don't deliver on time. There's seems to be no proper regulation of whether or not it, the system works. Um, the government lists all of these companies on its website, but doesn't seem to have a grip on whether or not they're sort of chances. So that's something that I'm going to be keeping looking into, especially while holidays are opening up. And people are going abroad again because that is adding to an already shoddy system of self-isolation. So red list or not, the Indian variant shouldn't be here if we had a proper system that sto- that, that, that stopped people spreading uh, when they got back from abroad. Um, and then, of course, there's this, there's this um, I mean, I don't know whether you noticed this, but on the radio this morning, you know, you had these ministers telling people to exercise caution. I was reading a headline on the BBC website that was saying you can hug people again at the same time as listening to Kwasi Kwarteng saying, please keep practicing social distancing. Um, and then you have Matt Hancock saying, oh, actually, you know, you mustn't go to, you mustn't go abroad to X 
countries in Europe when the headlines are you're allowed to go on holiday again. So are, is the government losing its grip on the narrative like we've seen it do so many times before where they're sort of saying one thing but allowing people to do another? Alva, do you think it's a sort of case of deja vu again? I actually think that we've seen a real difference from the government this time in terms of how they've handled the communications around the unlocking. And I think there really has been a notable clarity in the unlocking this time. I think it's really easy to forget quite how chaotic it was the last time we did this and how much clearer it has been this time. I think that, you know, rather than leaving people in a sort of halfway house where you were allowed to, you you could be indoors with people who weren't from your household in certain commercial scenarios and not others and restaurants were open indoors, but you should only be there with with a member of your household, which was completely unpleasable. I think that the, the middle step that we've had for a while where people have had more freedoms, but you can only access hospitality outdoors. And, and in general, this this quite simple stage that we've had of try to do things outdoors and keep your distance has been quite clear. And then moving to, to the next stage of the unlocking is again quite clear. I suppose the different tone at different points taken by government ministers is just reflective of, I suppose, their hope that a small proportion, a bit like with previous unlockings, a proportion of people are going to be more cautious than they're told to be. And that's maybe not a bad thing if they are worried about variants. But in general, there is a, a commercial imperative to get back to normal. And most people do want that. So I actually, I do think that, you know, you could, this is probably a success of people like Dan Rosenfield, the new chief of staff in Downing Street, that the government communications have been so much clearer and they aren't over-promising in the same way. And so I think if a change, of course, was necessitated, we have at least been warned this time. Yeah, Boris Johnson has, has just been just... It's a it's like a new man as prime minister, really, compared with last time, I think. At the start of this pandemic, I think there were two groups of people in you know, Westminster or the political class who I think were to blame for the communications issues. The first were the politicians of the political half of the political class, and the other half were political journalists. This is top of mind just because I was talking to someone in the Treasury who was complaining about it, as I feel they have basically continually since it happened. Right near the start of the pandemic, Rishi Sunak was asked something like three times to whether or not he could rule out that there was going to be a recession. He actually didn't evade the question. He, He said in a much politer way than I would have managed, well, yaha, like, a recession is kind of the point of this policy. <laughs> like, that, you know, <clears throat> a recession is a sign that the lockdown is working. And yeah, actually, that's been true throughout the throughout the process, right? Whenever there have been those stories or those kind of Twitter memes about, oh, these people outside look like they might be having too much fun and we know that actually joy spreads the virus. It, the sign that this hasn't been true and that people are observing lockdown has been what has been happening to the economy each time we've gone gone back down into it. And I think there is broadly a fairly, not settled, heavily contested, but there is a majority opinion within the government about what level of risk and what level of mitigation they're willing to accept as we exit on the 21st of June. There's an opinion in the parliamentary party, which is um, somewhat more mitigation and somewhat yeah somewhat less tolerant of mitigation and somewhat more tolerant of risk but what we don't really have is a, a sort of public conversation about like okay well what does that mean right so if our policy is um you know and kind of that does seem to be a kind of the 
the center ground proposition at the moment seems to be broadly okay we should have had we should have even more un, even more lockdown for countries outside of the of the uk so well what does that mean in the long term right are, are we willing to basically go if we assume that france will never have more than 50% of people vaccinated and considering the much lower uptake of vaccines in general in france that doesn't seem unreasonable yeah like is our policy that people can't just pop on the eurostar whenever they feel like it i'm not necessarily saying that shouldn't be but i think that there's a bit of a problem that we are kind of careening to that as a position without anyone really thinking of through what they're calling for other than the government which i do think has been more clear it does however of course have the what i think is the ineradicable boris johnson syndrome then it will a government led by boris is never ever going to be able to lead with its bad news right it will always be you can hug your parents you will never ever be able to visit your grandparents in france israel or nasaka or wherever again in in a much smaller voice right that will that will always be the mode that this government communicates in on basically any issue if you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too then why not subscribe to the new statesman you can get 12 weeks for 12 pounds go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12 ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now it's time for a section we like to call... You ask us. Today's question is from Paul Davidson. He asks, as the Brexit and Corbyn animus fade, what are the new dividing lines for the next decade? Um, And he clarifies, I'm thinking mainly about inter rather than intra party. I always forget which one's inter and which one's intra. Does he mean between political parties? So inter is when I go, wow, the economist is a tedious rag have they considered reaching a conclusion other than regulate a little less and be a bit more generous in social security as their problem in every, as their solution in every country that's inter magazine com- combat intra magazine conflict is going to be like oh a new show you a local guys local government in trouble again no change the record sister <laughs> so yeah this okay. is got it <laughs> okay well i suppose alva do you, do you think there are other dividing lines that are sort of obviously emerging? I think that's I think that's just a tricky question because certainly with the Conservative Party and where it has been drawing those dividing lines, that's in a bit of flux. We had this quite new realignment of politics with Brexit, as um, the the questioner alluded to there, in that we. We did at the 2019 general election see the Conservatives manage to to pick up a whole chunk of new voters along Brexit lines that it hadn't had before. 
and now it's seeking to hold on to them with basically a new economic offer for them. So, so you know, you could you could make the argument. It has been like been put to me when when I do media and they talk about the realignment of British politics and whether it's got it's you know it's sort of like a liberal versus conservative dividing line along along social issues and the left whether the left right divides are gone. I think that's just really complicated by the fact that it's not even clear whether that conservative strategy will be able to last to the end of this parliament because we had the Queen's speech um, last week they're still debating it here in parliament and there was there was a really good piece by uh, Rachel Wolf, who was one of the authors of the 2019 conservative manifesto and one of the very good points that she made in that piece for conservative home is that this is really the last point for the government to deliver on some of those you know leveling up quote unquote promises and so it's not really clear going going forward, you know, a year from now or the next time that we fight a general election, whether the Conservatives will be able to say we're about more police, more hospitals, X, Y, Z, and look at the levelling up that we've already done when they aren't necessarily going to be able to deliver any of that in time, which will make it harder to promise more of it. And then on the other hand, I think you will have, have Rishi Sunak and a whole host of Conservatives making the case for a degree of austerity or more difficult decisions. So I actually, my answer is not so much that that I think there's going to be a big realignment, but I actually think that we could get back to more conventional left-right divides in our politics just because I, I'm really not sure how the conservative strategy is entirely sustainable. Interesting. Stephen, what do you think? This is really good and interesting question i think one of the things which is interesting about it is to what extent do you think brexit and corbyn were um symptoms rather than causes now, now obviously I, I think the overwhelming reason we left the european union is we're a eurosceptic country we've had a eurosceptic media we've had comparatively now yes it is actually true to say that in reality you do not need to have that good uh, or indeed any grasp of any language other than english to use your freedom of movement rights to the to their to a, a pretty full extent but the perception that you do i think is one reason why why in the referendum uh, there were the um there was the opposition to free movement that you have in almost every um, E27 country, albeit in some places in quite a different direction, right? In Poland, for example, some of those debates are about we use lose too many of our young people. But what you didn't have is the um, countervailing pressure of, of people of working age across the United Kingdom going, but during the last recession, I went abroad and I would like to have that, um, that escape route necessary, available if necessary, K thanks. So I think the main reason were those kind of structural factors. But the difference between 48, 52%, I think, was the fact that George Osborne opted to use the budget before, not as a kind of pre-election or pre-referendum budget, which would be very loose, but to deliver that very, very tight deficit reduction timetable they had. And I think the election of Corbyn represented the fact that um, although, you know, the, the median Labour member is someone who is exposed to but not affected directly by the cuts, as in, so they're someone who... They work for a charity or a bit of the public sector. or So obviously all of those people are directly affected by the cuts. In a, but what I mean is, is they are, they are people who primarily their workload is dealing with the consequences of the cuts rather than sell, themselves um, necessarily being affected directly by them. But in terms of all of the stuff that, um, that you know, say Anoush was writing about at the time, right, all of that stuff were, was people than the, the median Labour member 
was very exposed to in a way than the average voter wasn't and the average uh, journalist was not writing about at the time. And now, obviously, the effect of both of those was to accelerate. Yeah, I was talking about this with a, a Labour peer and they were saying the weird thing is, is that these are all the debates that you know people around Labour and Conservative strategy were having in 2005. And they said, if you showed them, if you said, if you showed them the election result in Canterbury or the election result in Don Valley, right, they would have gone, oh, yeah, that makes a sort of sense. This is from 2040, right? Um, and the, the consequence of, of both Brexit and Corbyn was to accelerate those trends rather than, I think, them being the drivers of, of either of them. But I think Alva is right. Then, um, yeah, British politics at the moment is a, uh, in conflict between two heavily romanticised ideas. You have this deeply romanticised Labour idea about who the voters they've lost are. I mean, you know, look, it's very clear from... Um, the reshuffle indeed from everything and Labour is saying privately and publicly, then the plan is to talk a lot about jobs. And it is, look, not wholly clear to me why a focus on jobs when your issue are is losing votes of people who had secure work and retired and now have secure housing, whether they are owner-occupiers or the worryingly small number of people in the United Kingdom who can get a social house, social housing let. It's not clear to me that jobs is actually necessarily the, the great dividing line they think it is, but but I could be wrong. But broadly, like the other, the sentimentality the Conservative Party has is, you know, this phrase taxes to be as low as possible. And by the way, we'll keep servicing the debt. And so, well, uh, sooner or later, the, the rubber hits the road on that one. And I think then once the rubber hits the road, Alva is exactly right. We, we You end up with something which looks a lot more like left-right politics because, um, well, you know, why would it not, to be blunt? Yeah, I'm so glad you both said that because I don't know whether you feel the same, but I do feel quite tired of, of having that you know, of having it put to me as if it's sort of, you know, decided that the Conservative Party is sort of the the new big state party and, and, and you know, we're, we're living in a world where, where they're the ones delivering all of these fabulous projects and funding all of the things that people want to be funded in their local areas and things. Because really, when you look at the detail of what policies have been assigned as part of the levelling up agenda in the, in the Queen's speech, it doesn't look like it's as focused on, you know, rebalancing the economy in the sense of sort of funding regional Im- imbalances, making people's areas look different from from how they were, then we th- we assumed that it was going to be leveling up. Still, still appears to be one of those things that you just that you just use as a slogan for the kind of policies that you that you've been wanting to do for ages. Um, obviously, it's important to skill people up, for example, but um, it doesn't quite have the same. Um, you know, idea to it unless it's unless it's linked to people's places. And that's what that's what I think the big dividing line is going to be in the future. I think it's going to be about place and how you use space. So we've been looking a lot about the decline of public spaces, basically places where you can go for free, meet up with people in your local area and and gather. Um, those places have either been privatized or have been, you know, closed so that you can only go for a certain number of hours because of austerity, because of the way that um, uh, sort of development takes place in towns and cities. So I think that's going to be the new thing. And you can already already see it happening, you know, and it, and, it, and it can come from all sorts of different policy agendas. So this maybe is cheating a bit on the inter-party question, because I'm sure there'll be intra 
party debates about this as well. Changing um, the use of people's streets, for example, has been incredibly controversial. Um, low traffic neighbourhood and other traffic calming measures. These kind of things have always you know, caused huge ruptures, but, but you can see it following the new dividing lines that we have in our politics. You can even see it running along sort of culture war lines as well. Um, and then you also have this idea of of sort of how much development do you want to do in town and city centres? You know, the Conservatives lost overall or overall control of Tunbridge Wells Council, for example, and that's, you know, that's sort of considered culturally the beating heart of Tory England. There's been development going on in the town centre. More of this, more of these kind of local battles are going to break out as the Conservatives try and pass their their planning reforms. Um, so obviously that is going to cause intra-party um, heartache, but th- there will be that. I think that will become a dividing line and a bigger dividing line than it is in politics too, because leveling up is supposed to be about improving people's local spaces. It doesn't look quite like it's going to be as simple as that. And already we can see that our the way that we use our places, the way that we experience our places are causing contentiousness, contentious sort of local political battles along the new culture war lines that Brexit and uh, Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party accelerated, as Stephen argued. So that's something that I'm going to be looking into. And I expect it's going to cause not only sort of local ruptures, but but national uh, debate as well. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about the inter-party stuff, the, yeah, the inter-inter-party question is, what we've all assumed, I realise, is that one side of both parties, but particularly and more importantly in this context, the Conservative Party will win, right? Our answers all assume that between the um, fiscal strategy as <laughs> laid out in Rishi Sunak's budget and the, and you get a town hall and you get a bit of government, the infra stuff, then what will happen is, is that there will continue to be a large gap between this government's willingness to spend on infrastructure and its willingness to spend on day to day. And then therefore, in terms of the private affluence, public squalor dimension, and I think mm. is a big part of the story and a lot of the seats Labour are losing and indeed lots of the seats that they, uh, the, yeah, the traditional margin, marginals that they have been losing for a long old time now. And then the problem with a lot of levelling up is it becomes the Conservatives won in 2019, they built you a new structure, and now the new, the new structure is like slightly scary. It's a place where kind of youths who don't have anything to do and who in some cases are sliding towards criminality because of cuts elsewhere hang out and you find it a bit scary even to go near it. We can't, we're all sort of assuming then that is the trajectory towards you. Mm. But of course it is equally possible the Conservative Party, well, I don't actually think it is equally possible, but it's possible that the argument is one in the other direction and you end up with um, with kind of an actual end to cuts as opposed to to sort of the situation we've had since about 2017 where the government has been ending austerity for some people in some parts of the country, which I just don't think is sustainable and eventually does become a political debate. But I guess this is why the intra-inter stuff is, is so hard to discuss without reference to one another. But Albert, you've also presupposed that we will end up back in a kind of more economic angle. Why do you think that side of the Conservative Party will win its internal debate? I'm leaving a lot of space to be surprised by... Boris Johnson's capacity to reinvent himself or even to sustain this high investment levelling up narrative, even if it's not really delivering for people. But I think it's it's just, I suppose, the 
the the fact that there needs to be meat on the bone of the policies basically i i think it's entirely possible actually that for quite a long time boris johnson will still be conservative leader and the conservatives will still be pushing this idea of you know police nurses hospitals investment leveling up and so on but i just think that it's you can already tell that they'll really struggle to deliver on that whether it materializes or not i think isn't the question it's the question of whether they can continue selling it that way and that and sort of for that reason i think in terms of what's actually going to happen it seems almost certain to me that the conservatives will decide that they have to pay for things and that that's where so many of them feel more at home and so i think i think it's really for that reason it's it's more about i think what will have to be happening in the fundamental policies and what won't have been delivered on on time and whatever narrative you you put on top of that is maybe a bit less certain but i think that there's just sort of it seems really unlikely to me that Rishi Sunak will just sort of give up and happily spend loads of money and at the same time that the Conservatives will suddenly start really delivering for people in places like Hartlepool um, in a very short window. I think that the, those those are both just quite unlikely. I really agree with you. I think one of the symbols of that was the fact that they ducked the social care issue at the Queen's speech. You know, Really, I mean, I know that we've spoken so much about the divisions within the party and, and the government, you know, the people on the government benches themselves, you know, over the course of, of, of the podcast during the pandemic year. But really, this should be a time when they can tackle difficult and expensive issues. You know, the public has shown that it's on board with them, you know, spending a lot on the emergency COVID response. They had a good showing in the elections. They're a confident party. Um, they've got a mandate for the ideas that they put forward in their in their manifesto. Really, they should be able to come up or propose at least a plan for funding social care properly, and they didn't. And I, that shows me that this government is not as confident as, as as it looks. Shows me that there are divisions between Number Ten and the Treasury that make it very difficult to imagine that this government's actually going to spend big and spend for people who who need it the most. Um, and it also tells me that it's a government very similar to others. You know, there's a there's a tendency to talk about this government as if it's some kind of radical break from from Tory governments past, but really. It's not, and it's not so different from the past, you know, beyond beyond 2010, further into the further into the history of sort of modern government. Um, the IFG, the Institute for Government, um, who who we love on this podcast, have done a really interesting bit of research on how all governments of all stripes tend to have a they have a tendency of reinventing the same policies but slapping their own name and slogan onto it so in the last 30 years there's been 28 major pieces of legislation on further education and there's been three industrial strategies in the last decade you know so and this this kind of stuff is what this government is talking about so that policy sort of it's not even renewal but that policy kind of recycling is essentially what this government is doing at the moment, as far as I can tell. Like you say, I'm open to being surprised, but I thought this Queen's speech was really telling. Um, and the stuff that it wants to do in its own name is very similar to stuff that other other governments in, in recent years have, have said that they want to tackle. You know, they've unveiled some shiny new name for it. And it hasn't really resulted in anything particularly material to the extent that, you know, they need to make more promises about it in the next manifesto. I think that is going to be the nature of this government, which will be incredibly disappointing for people who have put their faith in it. 
but obviously the dividing lines like we've just been talking about are 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 changing and and that can compel politicians to to have different priorities. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Stephen KB. If you've got a question for the You Ask Us section, you can email one in at the email address podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. Our producer is Chris Stone and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.